This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Were you one of those people that raced out to get your L's as soon as you were old enough? Or maybe you waited, not necessarily because you didn't want to learn to drive, but because there was nobody to teach you. Later, we're going to be talking learning to drive as an adult because we know it can be expensive, hard to find a teacher, but also there's a lot of stigma around people who don't drive as adults. So how has not having a license impacted your life? We're going to be speaking to a few different people. Also, Australia's consent inquiry, it started. We're going to tell you what's happening there. First, though, hack. We're here to protect our democracy. We were left with no choice but to go to disobedience. I am 100% in favour of this judicial reform. I think my country needs it. On Triple J. Earlier this year, we brought you the news of massive protests in Israel. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis taking to the streets. A lot of young people furious about proposed new laws in the country that would weaken the judiciary in Israel, so the court system. Well, four months later, after we spoke about it, these protests are still happening, but they've just kicked into a whole new level because yesterday, those controversial laws, they passed the parliament. In a bit, we're going to speak to someone about how long this could continue for, someone involved in the protests. But first, to bring us back up to speed, here's Shalala Madora. For months and months, protesters in Israel have been blocking roads, marching on major cities and gathering outside Israel's parliament, known as the Knesset. Police have used water cannons to try and disperse the crowds, but it hasn't really stopped citizens from showing up to make their voices heard. They've got a lot to say, but this word is the most common one you'll hear. Democracy. They're protesting new laws proposed by the government, a coalition of right-wing parties who've been in power for a little over six months. He has a coalition that includes, frankly, ultra-nationalist extremists who have racist histories in the coalition. Jonathan Panikoff is an expert in Israeli politics and a former US intelligence officer. Here he is explaining the new laws to ABC 24. The legislation really at this point is focused on something called the reasonableness doctrine. The new laws would effectively stop the Supreme Court from being able to strike down what it sees as dodgy laws. And that's really significant to the way the country runs. What it says is um, the Israeli Supreme Court no longer can use this doctrine, which it had traditionally used to strike down laws that were frankly viewed as, quote unquote, unreasonable. Um, That's important because unlike Australia, unlike the US, Israel doesn't have a constitution. The government announced this law in January, saying unelected officials have too much power under the current system. The laws passed the Knesset yesterday. The opposition tore up documents and boycotted the vote. And protesters see the new laws as a fatal blow to democracy in Israel. This is one of the saddest days of my life, if not the saddest. I'm both sad and angry. And I think that now we need for all the members of Knesset to leave the building now, resign and go home. They failed. And I have children and I don't know what to do and what to tell them. How can we continue to live like this? Look at this. This is, this is so bad. I, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm so worried about the, the future of my country. Workers have threatened a general strike, 
which would have huge economic impacts. And thousands of reservists of the armed forces have said they'll boycott training because of what they label as moves towards a dictatorship. We are again in the front line defending Israel, but not from external forces, from within, from here, from Tel Aviv. A lot of anger is directed at this guy. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's been in power in Israel for 15 of the last 27 years and currently faces charges of corruption. And he's very, very concerned that if he were to um, not give the right what it wants and that his coalition would come tumbling down, that he himself would be at risk, frankly, um, of not being protected politically. Hack Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. Yeah, there is a lot going on in Israel at the moment. So let's speak with someone who's there, who's involved in these protests. Eve is in Jerusalem. She's part of the student protests. She joins us right now. Hey, Eve, thanks for making the time to speak with us on Hack. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you feeling now, these controversial laws that have been the subject of protests for so many months, they've now passed the parliament. What's the feeling like with, you know, amongst you and your friends? Um, I think that we're feeling honestly really frightened. I think that kind of the social contract in our country has been really violated. Um, I think that we're not really sure what happens next. And I think we're also very hopeful. I think, I think that we're really, really hopeful. And we know that yesterday was a really big thing that happened, but it's not the end of the story. Um, I think we plan to continue to protest these laws, um, these anti-democratic laws that are being passed. Um, but I definitely think there's a lot of fear and confusion as to what happens next. Can you describe what it's like to be part of these protests? Because we're talking hundreds of thousands of people, you know, across the country who are out there in force. What does it feel like to be a part of that? I think it's incredibly surreal. Um, I think protests on this scale really kind of upset everyone's entire life. Um, and I think that that's a strange feeling to to wake up and, and spend your day in a campsite in Sakir Park where hundreds, thousands of people are just camping out because they want to be close and able to protest um, or to walk down a highway because you are blocking the highway in protest. It's, it's an incredibly surreal feeling um, to see police forces who unfortunately we've seen have been very violent with protesters. Um, to see police uh, pulling protesters apart or or spraying pictures with water, coming with police horses. It's just like a very surreal. Sometimes it feels like the end of the world and sometimes you've been doing it for six months so it just becomes your new normal. The protests have been going on for months, right? Like for, for, for so long. When do you think they're going to end? When do you see this drawing to a close? I think it's been incredibly inspiring to see the people that have come out and, and made the statement that, they're not willing to live in a country that's not democratic and they'll fight to keep this country democratic. And, and so I think that they're not going to draw to a close until we have our democracy back. I think the protests will continue on in some form until we reach wide agreement in the country among the people um, and, and know that we're living in a democracy, which is kind of currently um, being called into question as these laws progressively are passed. And how likely do you think that is? that it's, it's going to work? Um, 
I think that's a question that I can't answer through like an analysis or through realism. I just have to say that like, I know, I know that it will work. And as terrible as Israel's leadership is and is, is behaving right now, I have so much faith in the people. And I think being part of these protests and being out on the streets along with hundreds and thousands of people has given me so much hope um, that truly the people living in Israel are, are going to fight for something um, that they believe in and that they believe in the same things I believe in, values of democracy and liberalism and pluralism and freedom. And I think that I just have so much faith and hope that we'll make it there. Well, hey, Eve, it's definitely being noticed. The world is watching. Student protester Eve from Jerusalem, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thank you. And I just, I just, if you said that, I just want to throw in that I'm so happy the world's watching and the world should know that you can influence this and you can take part and you should talk to your politicians at home um, and you should be pressuring Israel too because what's happening here is wrong and you can influence it. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, a lot going on in Israel. We will make sure we keep you up to speed with what's happening there. Time to move on. Hack. It is the minimum principle we need to make sure that survivors are going through a system that's going to treat them fairly and treat their stories fairly. On Triple J. Last week, we were asking author Yumi Steins about consent education in Australia. Like, you'll remember we were speaking about the backlash to a sex education book she's co-written. And that book also included information for young people on consent. Well, consent is back in the headlines this week because there's a big inquiry in Parliament into the issue that's got underway. Now, already in this inquiry, we've heard one in five Australian women and one in 16 men over the age of 15 will experience sexual violence in their lifetime. How do we change that? And what is this inquiry hoping to achieve? Well, political reporter Claudia Long is with us in Parliament House. Hey, Claude, thanks for coming on. Hello, thanks for having me. Can you explain what the point of this whole inquiry is? So essentially what the Senate is looking at is how we can harmonise consent laws around the country. So at the moment, um, consent laws are really the domain of the states and territories most of the time. So uh, that means that, you know, depending on where you live, you're governed potentially by very different sets of rules in regards to this. So we've seen some states, for instance, I think New South Wales and Victoria have what's called an affirmative consent um, model where people essentially have to um, make sure it's, it's the responsibility is on people's partners uh, to ensure that they're consenting. And of course, people can't consent if they're intoxicated, if there's a range of other factors at play. That's a very, um, you know, broad description, uh, but that's essentially how that model works is it's about ensuring that consent um, can can be given. Uh, whereas in other states and territories, it's, it's a bit less, um, I guess, proactive in, in that way. And so that's what this uh, inquiry is looking at, is making sure that we can have you know, consistent laws around the country that can apply um, around around Australia instead of just different ones in each state and territory that mean victims uh, and survivors are having to potentially face a whole bunch of different rules depending on where they live. Yeah, and that's certainly something that we've heard a lot about in the past when we've talked to advocates especially about how uh, something can be the law in one state or territory, a person moves and then there's a whole different set of rules or criteria. There's been a few expert witnesses already, Claudia, including some of those consent advocates and educators. What have they been calling for? Yeah, that's right. So one of the main calls that's come through today has been around education. 
and ensuring that um, from an early age, kids are educated around consent. And, you know, uh, I believe it was Saxon Mullins who was there today. Uh, she was giving evidence that it's actually really important to start consent education with things that have nothing to do with sex um, and relationships. Things like, you know, taking somebody's toy truck off them, for example, and saying, no, don't do that. Or teaching kids that something like that is wrong so that when you eventually move to questions around consent um, and sexuality um, and sex, that that's not such a shock, you know, it's not coming out of nowhere. It's really based on these kind of foundational principles that can absolutely be um, introduced when, when kids are pretty young. And so what um, has been discussed today is that there's really a need to have consistent uh, consent education as part of sex and relationships ed in schools because at the moment there are some pretty um, big you know variations in terms of what's being delivered. We actually heard from um, consent labs today as well um, and they were saying that uh, for public school kids and private school kids, there's a divide there too um, because private schools, they've said that they've observed that they have more resources at their disposal to run, um, you know, longer programs, more programs on this and public school kids to some extent are missing out on all of having access to all of those same resources and that kind of education. So there's two kind of big things there um, and that was definitely one of the things that came through today and we also heard a lot about universities. So, uh, and stop me, Dave, if I'm getting too in the weeds here. <laughs> no, but, no. Oh, it's um, interesting. There's been some criticism of Universities Australia, which is the peak body for Australian, you'll never guess, universities <laughs> in Australia. Um, and essentially, they got a $1.5 million grant from the federal government uh, under the last government to deliver a campaign um, to tackle sexual violence on campus. And we know that that's a huge problem. At the moment, it's estimated that 275 students are assaulted uh, in a university setting. So that's in and around campus every single week. That is a huge number. Yeah. And then this campaign just simply hasn't eventuated. In fact, they went back to the department and said, um, actually, this isn't feasible. And it's been reported in the week over the weekend um, by the Saturday paper that that was because just a small group of vice chancellors didn't like the explicit nature of the campaign. So we've heard from the public service on that today. They've given us their side of how that all went down. Later in the week, we're going to hear from Universities Australia um, and we're going to get their side of things as well. So that's definitely one to keep an eye on. Yeah, I was going to ask, Claude, these hearings are going to keep going over the next couple of days, I think, right? Like, it's not a huge, hugely long inquiry. It's only going for a few days. What should we expect? Yeah, that's one of the interesting things about this inquiry, I think, because normally with these Senate inquiries, we see them stretched out over many weeks, if not months. It's quite unusual to see them concentrated in such a small period of time, which is from now to Thursday. And what you can expect to hear more of is a number of experts who um, know obviously quite a lot about consent education, but also best practice when it comes to eliminating violence, in particular against women, but people of all genders, um, and also from law experts as well. So we actually heard from uh, lawyer Karen Isles today, who's from Violet Co., uh, and and kind of explaining how the law works in this respect or more accurately perhaps doesn't work and how impenetrable um, and sometimes harmful the, the process of going through the justice system can be for victims. Um, we're going to hear from the Law Society later on in the week. So they've made a submission around this as well. Um, so definitely expect to hear more about not only education, but also around the legal aspects of this and how these laws can actually be changed to be consistent around the entire country. Well, hey, if someone's going to be across all of this. I know it's going to be you. I did see you grilling the education <laughs> minister at the National Press Club the other day. So Claudia Long, we appreciate you making the time to speak with us. Thanks for joining us on Hack. 
Oh, thanks for having me. And we've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says, if consent is not a human right, shouldn't it be? Another person says, in 13 years of school, being primary public school and private Catholic high school, I received one 20-minute sex, sex education lesson in which we didn't learn anything. It's so important to understand why there are these divides. Yeah, it's certainly seeming like there are some inconsistencies across the board, right across the country. Time to move on. Hack. You're a virgin who can't drive. On Triple J. How good did it feel to get your driver's licence? The freedom, the independence. It's something a lot of people take for granted because not everyone has a licence. They may choose not to drive or they can't drive for whatever reason. Others, though, don't have access to someone who can teach them when they're younger. They don't have a parent that can help. Or maybe they don't have access to a car. It means learning to drive as an adult. And this comes with a whole range of complications. Maybe you know someone or this is you. You've been learning to drive as an adult or you've been putting it off. Call in 1300 you can message in as well, 0439757555. I want to hear, is there a lot of stigma? And maybe your friends are always giving you a hard time because you can't drive. Well, someone who does know a lot about this area, because he actually helps to teach people drive, is our very own breakfast newsreader, Tim Shepherd, And he's been out and about chatting to those trying to get in the road. Is there anyone you feel like driving to today? I don't know, last time we saw like the news and that. So come up to the lights then. Tony's been trying to get his licence for more than three years now. I'm at around 40 hours, so I can nearly do the 20-hour driving course, get those up and then just need to get the rest. It's been harder for him than most people because he doesn't have anyone in his life that can teach him. My mum not being able to drive in that, she doesn't have a licence, and yeah, just our situation, like, with the money and all that. We have, like, neighbours in that, but, like, they don't want me using because... Who wants to learn how to use a car? In Australia, before you can go for your P's, you usually need to log a lot of supervised hours. And New South Wales has some of the toughest rules. For someone who's under 25, they have to have their L's for at least 12 months. There are no exemptions on that either. And they also have to do at least 120 hours of on-road driving into their logbook. That's Leanne Green. She's from an organisation in Sydney called Weave and she's taking Tony out for a lesson. So on this roundabout, because it's got two lanes, you do have to indicate left before you leave the roundabout. She runs Weave's Driving Change Program, which helps young disadvantaged people to get their P's. It's part of a government program, so it's free, but there aren't enough spots for everyone who needs it. We have 250 people on our waiting list. Um, at any one time and that can take up to two years or longer, particularly with COVID. Our program was shut down for periods of time. Unlike some other states like Queensland and Victoria, New South Wales doesn't allow people to get an exemption from needing to complete supervised hours. So the only option for some people is to wait to join a program like Driving Change or spend thousands of dollars they don't have paying for lessons. Emma's been trying to get her licence for ages. She's 22 and is about to go for her P's, but it's been a long ride. I got my L's when I was 18 and I was with a driving program called Greenlight Movement and it got shut down when I was at 40 hours and then I just had no other opportunity to get any learner's hours in. 
until now. She's excited at the idea of finally being able to drive on her own. I think it's just a whole new level of independence. There's so many avenues that I can now look into if I have, yeah, my license behind me, work or travel, yeah. going to the shops and buying groceries. <laughs> it's much easier when you have a car. So does racking up all of these hours actually make you a safer driver in the long run? Let's ask an expert. Nathan Kettlewell is a researcher at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he's been analysing the stats behind Australia's supervised driving hours system. We wanted to evaluate whether you know, all of these hours that learner drivers are required to do actually has an impact on their crash risk, so whether it actually achieves that goal of, of making them safer drivers. The thing is, you didn't always have to do heaps of hours to get your P's. Your parents probably just had to pass a test. But that changed in the early 2000s when the New South Wales government started making learners do at least 50 hours. And then in 2007, they bumped it right up to 120. Nathan's looked at the number of crashes involving young drivers who got their licence under those three different systems. And what he found is pretty surprising. We compared people who were born just before the regime changed to people who were born just after it. What we found is that for the jump in hours from 50 to 120 in New South Wales, there was no effect on the probability of a crash. And what about the change from zero to 50 hours? Uh, in that case, we actually did find a reduction in, in crashes and it was about 20%. And that's, that's not insignificant. So, you know, the research does suggest that, that some practice is good. Nathan reckons it's time to look at ways we can make it easier for people to get their licence. It's a lot of hours. As a learner, that's, that's challenging. And so I think there's a lot of dimensions in which this is, you know, the burden is kind of unequally shared um, and, you know, perhaps entrenches sort of disadvantage. I think that, you know, we should make policy decisions based on evidence. And if the evidence isn't really there to support that decision, then, then it deserves a rethink. For now, though, services like WEAVE are still the only option for people like Emma. I wouldn't have the, the, any opportunity to get my licence if I didn't, like, apply through a program. Hack on Triple J. Tim Shepard with that story. Thank you, Timbo. Such an interesting one and so many people wanting to comment on this who can relate. On the text line, my mother had a DUI a week before my 16th birthday, then lost her licence for seven years. I got my L's at 23 but still had no one reliable to teach me. Bridget and Ballarat, I only got my licence in November at the age of 24. Comments from friends and family turned from encouraging to derision at around 20 years old, and very few were willing to sit in the car with me to get my hours up. Someone else, I got my learner's permit at 25. I went to a boarding school and my parents never had time. I did a logbook, very expensive. But with all the professional lessons, I'm now the best driver ever. Well, hey, everyone always says that. But I'm sure you're a really good driver. I do want to hear, if this is you, what kind of impact not having your licence as an adult has had on you. You can message in 0439757555. So how powerful is a driver's licence? Someone we're going to speak to now is Blake Angel. He's a senior research fellow in health economics at the George Institute for Global Health. He's with us now. G'day, Blake. Thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. You did some research a few years ago that I stumbled across and I found really interesting. You crunched the numbers to find out how much financial advantage, I guess, there is to having a driver's licence in Australia. What did you find? 
Yeah, so we know that license, holding a driver's license is associated with a, a range of uh, positive outcomes as, as, some, as the story has been through. And so what we're basically trying to do is uh, try and demonstrate the value of these economically. Um, so working out a, a dollar value um, as a means to answer uh, the policy question, I guess, is what the appropriate amount to invest in uh, these programs in helping people to get their license. Or I guess on the flip side, what are the benefits being missed uh, if barriers are preventing people from obtaining a license? And what we found was uh, an average value of about $2,300 per year uh, associated with holding a license. And that's about five years old now. So it's probably the equivalent of about $2,800 per year in today's, uh, today's dollars. So that's really interesting. What kind of stuff impacts that? Uh, so the valuation uh, did vary across the population, as you might expect. Um, so this is based on a survey we did of about uh, 1,100 Australians, which was broad, broadly representative of the population. Uh, but with the exception being we oversampled Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians to make sure we had um, enough power to look at look at results for Indigenous Australians specifically. Um, essentially, the people valuing the licences more, as you might expect, uh, were people who use their car more, um, particularly people who, who needed their car to either get to work or to actually uh, do their work. Um, interestingly, people with uh, who had previously experienced uh, having lost the licence uh, had the highest valuations of all, uh, perhaps indicating they, they really knew uh, they knew, really knew what it what it meant to them. Um, as you might expect, urban areas had lower valuations, um, while on the other hand, people in in rural and regional Australia had uh, much greater attachment to their license. Um, the last one I'll, I'll mention is whether a person lived alone or had de- dependent children. Uh, that was also related to to a higher valuation. So it's it's really a measure of. Um, importance for, for some people uh, some people yeah and that's what we're hearing on the text line now a lot of young parents especially saying I avoided getting my license until I was in maybe my early 20s had a child and then I really saw the value in that so Blake cannot having a license really impact other outcomes in your life in terms of health employment those sorts of stuff yeah um I mean, it's hard to, uh, to definitively attribute anything to holding a license, but we, we do know that holding a license is associated with uh, quite a few positive outcomes. I mean, obviously, it's transport. It's much easier to get around. Um, but also, holding a driver's license has been uh, associated with better employment um, outcomes, uh, health in terms of particularly access to healthcare. I mean, trying to get to doctor's appointments and other um, healthcare services without without a car is often very difficult or, or impossible. Um, it's also associated with better education outcomes, um, probably similar to, to work in, in that if you need to get to education, um, a car and, of course, a licence uh, definitely helps. I, get, I guess on the flip side, um, licensing-related offences, I heard one of the texters um, mention their mother, um, but licensing-related offences uh, do play a role in the involvement of, and it's often quite a disadvantaged subset of the population in the criminal justice system. Um, so it, it, can, it can also have that negative impact when it's when it's taken away. Yeah, 
Uh, well, and we're hearing that as well, as you said. There's There's been messages kind of to that effect as well. It, did, did it surprise you, Blake, that there wasn't more kind of research in this area? Like, do you think we really need to be looking into this a bit more, the impacts of having a licence, who's really affected by not having one? Yeah, I mean, initially, I must admit, it's not something I'd, I'd ever really thought of. Um, you sort of, you have a licence, it's all good. Um, but the, when you think about not having a license and, and seeing the impacts that it does have across the across the social uh, system, I guess um, yes, it's it's a very important um, document or, or thing to have, and um, the differences in in licensing rates and I guess over overburdening people and these barriers to obtaining them are, are having quite big impacts on people. Well, it's definitely interesting research that you've done. I'm sure there's going to be a whole lot more that researchers are doing in the years ahead. Blake Angel from the George Institute for Global Health, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thank you very much, Des. And I've got some messages coming through. Someone says, I didn't get my licence until I was 22 because of not having anyone to teach me. It was only once I was in a long-term relationship with someone on their open license that I could do a logbook. I was still a student, so it was hard to afford private lessons. Yeah, and this is part of the barrier we're hearing. Another person says, I currently keep getting shit from my family, but no one will teach me to drive. Makes finding work difficult, but I like public transport anyway. Well, that's lucky. And someone else says, you know what? It always bothered everyone else so much more than it bothered me. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.